So this morning, I'm going to be a a bit ambitious. We're going to try to get through all of Ecclesiastes 3. My track record isn't so great of getting through large passages, so we'll see how this goes. Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as loss, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for peace and a time, I'm sorry, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees the good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of man, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of man and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Thus is God's word. This morning, we're going to be looking at several important topics, one major topic and the implications of that topic as it pertains to God and his creation. Specifically, we're going to be looking at God's providence this morning, his providence over creation. We're going to be looking at some objections to his providence, and we're going to critique some of those worldviews. And as I pointed out, as we go through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see all of these worldly philosophies. We're going to interact with them, and we're going to combat them with the 
truth of Scripture. Chapter 3 here could be broken up into several points. First, you have verses 1 through 8. This is a recognition that life isn't random, that life isn't purposeless. There are appointed times for things that happen in our lives. Those times are appointed by God, and they're appointed in His providence. Second, we have verses 9 through 15, and these consists of the implication of God's providence and man's response to it. And then third, there's verses 16 through 22, and these consist of the present reality of things, especially as it pertains to man and his wickedness and how we can understand man's wickedness in light of God's providence of his governing the world. So beginning in verse 1, Solomon begins, begins chapter 3 with an emphatic statement that there is an appointed time for everything. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. This is the testimony of God. The Bible teaches that God is the one who appoints such times. This is called God's providence. I found one definition that I, I thought was right on point. It said, God's providence is God's faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made toward the end which he has chosen. So what he has made going towards the end he has chosen or he has declared. This point of doctrine stresses God's creation and government over the entire universe. Everything that he has created, he is sovereign, he is king, but he is also the governor. He is working all things. Chapter 5.1 of our Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of God's providence. And it says, God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, depose, and govern all creatures actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom and his power and his justice and his goodness and his mercy. So what the Westminster is pointing out is that this is all of God that the, the creation of all things is all of God, and the governing of all things is of God, that there is nothing outside of God and his will. You have this same testimony in Isaiah 46. God is speaking to his people Israel in this passage, and he's reminding them because they had forgotten that he is unlike his creation. The creator is unlike his creation. In verses 8 through 11, he says, Remember this and be assured. So he's telling them this is something you need to be, you need to remember this. And you need to know this is true. You are to be assured of this. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember former things long past. He's saying, remember what you had known from the beginning. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, 
declaring, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, this is key, I have planned it, surely I will do it. So you see the certainty of God's language. He's saying, I've declared the ends from the beginning. I created all things. All things are in my hand. And what I say will come to pass, will come to pass. There is no gray area in God's providence or his sovereignty. In verses 1 through 8, looking at it, I'm not going to go through every single line, but I'm going to talk about the purpose of verses 1 through 8. And we'll touch on a couple of them. But verses 1 through 8 intends to encompass all of life. Birth and death, beginning to end, good times and bad times, happiness and sorrow, all of these are seasons of life that we all go through, and all of these are from the hand of the Lord. This is universally recognized by Christians, and interestingly enough, even non-Christians. That's why we hear phrases like, everything happens for a reason. How many of you have heard, have heard people say that who aren't Christians? And they say, everything happens for a reason. It happens a lot, right? It happens all the time, even by the most hardened atheists. Most of the time, though, the word providence by them would be exchanged for destiny or for fate, something like that. But because humanity is created to be religious, because humanity is created to worship, and because God has placed eternity into the heart of man, it's not a surprise that providence is also written on the heart. After all, that is the claim of Romans 1. If you, think back, if you think to Romans 1 and verses 18 through 21, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident to them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without an excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him. They did not thank him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. So see, this is something that is evident to all people. That's the testimony of Romans 1. That the, the creation and God's divine nature, his sustaining all things, is evident to all people. And, and it's for this reason that Solomon last time, and we're going to hear this as we go throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon cl concluded last time that there is nothing better for man to do than to eat and drink and to enjoy what God has given him. Why? Because everything is from the hand of God. Everything is from God's providence. It flows from Him. 
There are a few more passages that, that we're going to look at that demonstrates God's providence over his creation, specifically mentioned here by Solomon. I mean, there are tons of, of verses that we could look at. We're just going to look at a few of them, but I wanted to look at some that Solomon specifically addresses in verses 1 through 8. He says, there is a time to give birth and a time to die. Now remember, it was promised by God to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would bear Abraham a son. Genesis 17, verses, uh, verse 21, he said, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So you see what God has done. God has said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah will bear a son. And when will it be? Season next year. This season next year. It's pretty specific. And what do we see a few chapters later? I think it was in chapter 21. It says, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So what you don't have here is a random occurrence. You have specifically a declaration by the Lord that he will bring something to pass. Three chapters later, it comes to pass, and he reminds Abraham and Sarah, I have done as I promised. What else can we learn from this? God always keeps his promises. What about the most important birth in the history of the world? Was that a random occurrence that happened at a random time in a random little town in the Middle East? Was that random? What about the birth of the promised Messiah? What does Galatians 4 tell us? Galatians 4, 4, we are told, But when the fullness of time came, that's the key, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might be received as adoption, the, the adoption as sons. So clearly, from Galatians 4, you see when the fullness of time came. Here we have another time passage. When this was appointed to happen, God sent forth his son. See, there is no randomness in this. It is all purposeful. It is all declaratory. This is happening. It was at the fullness of time, the appointed time. The birth of our Savior occurred precisely when God had ordained it. Just a few more. In verse 3, Solomon says, a time to kill and a time to heal. Well, in Deuteronomy 32:39, God says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death, and I who give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. That's a pretty emphatic statement. And again, when God makes these statements, he reminds the people who he is. He says, I am he. I am God. Therefore, this will happen. He's talking here about his sovereignty and his, about his providence. He is the one who heals, and he is the one who wounds. We have Hosea 6, verse 1. 
says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. So again, you have the, the testimony here in Hosea that it is the Lord who tears and the Lord who heals. It is the Lord who wounds, but he is the one who also bandages. So he is the one who controls all things. There are so many cross-references that, that we could look at all the way through uh, the first eight verses, and I would encourage you to take time to, to look at those. But the point is this, that the Lord created all things, and the Lord governs all things. Therefore, because of this, we can become frustrated when we attempt to plan out our lives thinking that we are the ones who are in control. This is what Solomon is running up against over and over and over again. In the second lecture of our study, when discussing the problem of man, which is his impermanence upon the earth, generations come and generations go and the earth remains and all the possessions remain, but the, but the man comes upon the earth, he lives his short little life, and then he dies and is forgotten. I quoted Jay Adams, and I want to quote it again because it's very pertinent to this passage. And he says, Somehow persons in each succeeding generation think that they are the exception. We tend to think that we are the ones who will beat the system. That we can beat this system. And he says, but they can't. The system they are up against is God's providential plan which he is working in time. That system is unbeatable. In providence, he orders the world as it is. What God has planned for it will continue so long as men labor under the sun. So Jay Adams is pointing out, and the reason I bring it up again is because when we become frustrated with our lives is because we forget the essential truth that God is working all things in his providence. He is most holy and most wise. And it is often when we think that we know better, that's when we become frustrated. And the system we are up against, as Jay Adams said, is unbeatable. God is sovereign, and God does enact his providence over creation. So we can say that the best laid plans often go awry. I mean, how many times do we have plans, and we, we think for certain we're going to do these things. And then when the time comes, it can't happen because of this or that. Something comes up, or something happens that hinders our plans, and we become frustrated with those things. It's because we can't control things. God is the one in control. And this is really precisely why James says in chapter 4, and this is something that we need to remember often, Come now, who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there or in, and engage in business and in profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. That's what James says, and that is a direct application of what's being taught here in Ecclesiastes. 
this presumptive nature that we're owed life or we're owed blessings from the hand of God. And we kind of forget our place in the creation, that we are not the creator, we are the creation. Man proposes, God disposes. Mm-hmm. I don't know who said it. I don't know who said it either. It is true. The Lord, whatever the Lord wills, will come to pass. So what are we to, to think about this? We are not to presume upon God's graciousness, not to, to take the things that he's given us for granted. We are to learn that we should not hold on too tightly to the things of this life. Again, because we are fleeting upon the earth. We are here today. We are gone tomorrow. That's what James is saying here in this passage. We're, we're like a vapor. I mean, we're so fragile that, that we think that next year we will do this and that. And we have no idea what will happen next year. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're not to plan but you're to plan in recognition of God's sovereignty and his, his providence over your life. A, rever, a reverent planning. Looking in verse 11, he summarizes verses 1 through 8 by saying, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So here in verse 11, he continues this theme of time. He continues this this theme of appointments or purpose. And although verses 1 through 8 can frustrate us and can perplex us, we always must remember that there is purpose to every single event in history. Now that can be hard to wrap your head around. Everything that has ever happened on this earth was planned, ordained by God. Although verses 1 through 8 can frustrate us, we must remember the essential truth that God is over his creation. Now, about this word um, appropriate in verse 11... Some translations uh, use the word beautiful. So all things are, or he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. The point is that everything does happen for a reason, and that reason is God's eternal purpose. It's for his glory. Later on in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 5, verse 18, the same word is translated fitting. So you have appointed, you have, or you have uh, appropriate, you have beautiful, you have fitting. Everything that comes to pass does so, that does so, is fitting because God has ordained it to be so. And I, I love that phrase, that it's beautiful. Think of something beautiful. We think something that's lovely or, or perfect or, or, or not. He's saying that everything is beautiful in its time and in its place. And it doesn't matter if we can make sense of it, does it? Does it really matter if we can make sense of 
of the events that happen in our lives, does that stop the events from happening? No. There are many things that come to pass that completely confuse us. They make no sense at all. But that doesn't mean that they're not fitting or appropriate or beautiful because they're all accomplishing a purpose, and that is God's glory. Jay Adams remarks here that since the course of history in large measure is not understandable here, that means while we're here on this earth, one longs for the full interpretation which he will not receive until eternity. Apart from eternity, he cannot find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So there is a longing to know. When we, when we pause and we see the things that happen in our lives, in our world, we long to know why did this happen this way. Sometimes that can frustrate us. Seeking out God's eternal purpose, which is hidden from us. When we search out, try to search out those things, that will frustrate us. But this should gently humble us. Why? Because it reminds us again the difference between the creature and the creator. Again, we have this, this gulf of, dif of, of difference between the one who has created and ordained all things and the creation who lives in this earth, on this earth, and knows very little of God's unsearchable will. But it should not leave us upset. It should not leave us uh, indifferent. It should bring us great, great comfort. Looking in verses 12 through 13, Solomon again says that there is no good for man toiling under the sun, that is, under the curse apart from God. It is God's gift for us to enjoy. All that he has given us, we are to enjoy. The, the joys and pleasures that we have are from the hand of the Lord. Thus, we are to enjoy them, and we are to be content in his providence. And last week, we talked about can we even have joy or pleasure apart from him? And that was a, a key phrase that we looked at last week. Can we have anything apart from him? No, we cannot. Then he concludes in verses 14 through 15. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has already been, and that which will be, has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. What can man do when he runs up against God's providence? Man can do nothing. Look at pas a passage, Isaiah fourteen twenty seven. In that passage, Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts has planned... And who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Think about that. Who can frustrate what the Lord of hosts has planned? Who can turn away his hand? Who can say to God, no God, it will not be this way? 
When it comes down to the, the creature and the creator, who will be the one frustrated? Who will be the one perplexed? What is Ecclesiastes about? Dealing with the frustrations and the perplexity of life as humanity on this earth under the curse. The book is not about God's plans being frustrated and perplexed. It is about man being perplexed and frustrated. For God to be God, he must be sovereign. And for God to be God, he must govern. It is when we attempt to seek out our own way that we become frustrated because we forget or we refuse to submit to the hand of the Lord who does govern all things. Now looking at verses 16 through 23, Solomon looks at the present reality. So in, in light of God's providence, he is creating all things and his governing all things. His working in all things, Solomon stops and looks at the present reality of life. Throughout the creation, so there is wickedness where there should be justice. There is wickedness where there should be righteousness. Now, if, if, if God is sovereign and if God is governing all things that come to pass, all events, why is there wickedness where there should be righteousness? Why is there wickedness where there should be justice? There are so many things in this life that are wrong. I think we all can agree with that. We often see wickedness reign, especially in places of authority, don't we? Again, verse 16 alerts us that this occurs under the sun. So another key marker, under the sun, that is, under the curse. The reason there is wickedness is because of man's rebellion against God. The reason wickedness continues and is often found where there should be righteousness and justice is due to man's continuing rebellion against God and against God's law, which is the standard for defining good and evil. That is why there is still wickedness here on earth. When you find wickedness in places of authority, you know what you will not find. You will not find God's word being laid up in the heart. Those two things are in opposition. But does this mean that God has somehow lost control over his creation? Because of the wickedness that we see in our nation, at abortion mills, anywhere on this earth, because we see that wickedness, does that mean that somehow God has lost control of his creation? Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. This too has come from the hand of God for his own purpose. And Solomon tells us in verse 17 that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Though a person may escape punishment for their wickedness on earth, he will receive his wages when he stands before the courtroom of heaven. So verse 16, we have, there is wickedness where there should be righteousness. There is wickedness where there should be justice. And what's Solomon's conclusion? Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. There will be an enacting of judgment 
against those who are wicked. Wickedness will not go unpunished. And notice it says that, the, the text says that it is God who will do this. So in light of what we've already talked about, God's providence, when God says he will do something, it's going to happen. This isn't some speculation that, well, maybe if this person just did this little minor wickedness versus this other person's major wickedness, the Lord will take care of the major wickedness, but the, the minor wickedness will, will kind of pass by. That is not what the Lord says. He will dispense his justice perfectly. And that time, just like every other time mentioned in verses 1 through 8, is fixed. It is appointed, and it will happen. Looking at verses 18 through 22, Solomon continues on this uh, conclusion that the sons of men have been tested by God in order for them to see that they are but beasts. And at first reading, this passage perplexed me. It frustrated me for a minute because I didn't understand what, what was trying to, to be said by Solomon. But he's not talking here ontologically, that is, in being, that, that man is an animal or that man is a beast. Though man and beast are creatures of God, we, we share that in common, there is a difference in being. We are made in the image of God whereas animals are not. Yet Solomon is pointing out here that, that men act more like animals than they act like God. We agree with that. That there is a greater gulf of difference between man and God than man and the dog or cat at home. Though we are made in the image of God, we often act as if we're not. We are self-centered, we are self-indulging, we devour one another, we destroy one another. He says in verse 19 that both man and beast have one breath and neither have advantage over the other. All go to the same place. Again, please understand the distinction being made. He's not saying that we are of the same kind as the animal, again, because we're made in the image of God, but he's speaking here of, of life under the curse, life under the sun. We share the same diseases, the, the same pains and casualties as animals. In this present life under the sun, we all go to the grave. We all die. Then he says of man, who knows if the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth? Well, later Solomon says emphatically and clearly in Ecclesiastes 12:7 that man's body goes down to the grave, but his spirit returns to God. So this isn't really a question of Solomon thinking, who, who knows anything? He's not saying that. I think when he's saying, who knows, he's not intending that we cannot know what happens to, man at, to man's spirit at death. Rather, it's, it's more like, who really gets it? Or who really understands? Who knows? Who, who has this knowledge and is understanding 
what's happening on this earth. And we, we've seen Solomon talk this way before. You know, because life is frustrating and perplexing, it's hard for our, our heads to get around life on this earth. It's hard for us to realize that we will die. It's hard for us to realize that we are a bit of vapor. And here, it's hard for us to realize that we will go to the grave and then our spirit will be somewhere else. Then finally, he concludes in verse 22, as he, had, as he has previously, that man is to be happy in what he does, for that is what the Lord has given him. So again, the same conclusion over and over we'll see throughout Ecclesiastes. Man is to be content in God's providence. Who can add to the Lord? Who can take away from the Lord? Now quickly, I want to push back on a, a few worldviews that would attempt to remove God from his providence. First, you have deism, which captured many, many people in the 18th and 19th centuries, and it still captures people today. Deism suggests that a supreme being, and some people have embraced a Christian-type deism, that this supreme being created the universe but has no interaction with his creation. Therefore, there cannot be any governing of the creation. This, of course, is not the testimony of Scripture as we have seen. Ecclesiastes may be one of the, the greatest bulwarks of God's providence. There certainly cannot be a Christian deism. And Dr. Sproul rightly pointed out that if the sovereign creator is not working out his plan according to his most wise counsel, chance is ultimate. There must be an ultimate. If not the sovereign Lord, it would be chance. Now there is, of course, a wide spectrum of those considered deists. There are those who take like a watchmaker approach. I'm sure some of you have heard this. That suggests that God has created this, this watch. The universe is a watch. And he has wound the watch up. All right? He's set the, the time. He's wound it up. And it starts ticking. And then God removes his hand from the watch. And it just continues to tick until the battery dies. And that's it. That is one of the forms of deism. But then, curiously, there are other commonly called deists, and I've found this interesting, studying some of our founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson is considered a deist, but actually embraced providence, yet still denied supernatural revelation. So even some deists do embrace providence, but they deny that we can truly know anything about God. So begs, it makes one ask, well, how, how do you know that there is providence if you can't know anything about God? It's a little tough. So there is a wide range of deism. And this, of course, pushes back against Scripture. Scripture is emphatic that God is the creator. And God does govern all things. And there is a really good article I, I would suggest that you take some time today on Ligonier's website and, and look at it. It talks about the five points of, of deism. And then 
it contrasts it with what Scripture says about God and who He is and ways to talk to people who, who have this worldview. Second, you have fatalism. This is particularly uh, important for us to, to know. Fatalism suggests that whatever will be, will be. All right, have you heard people say that? Whatever will be, will be. It's the idea that the future is determined by either chance or some sort of impersonal force or an arbitrary God. Because of this, there is no purpose to anything. There is nothing for us to really do or to, to know. There's no purpose for anything that we do in this life. It's interesting, some have accused Solomon of being a fatalist. Well, why? Because of his constant conclusions that, that everything is vanity, that we're toiling under the sun, and there, there is nothing. Later on, he, he says some things about how it's better to not be born than to be born and die. So they accuse Solomon of fatalism. But I think that's at the expense of misunderstanding. Well, the testimony of, of Scripture is that he is foreordained whatever comes to pass, and that is true. But the key difference is that of providence, what we've been studying this morning. Things don't just happen by brute force. The future is only perfectly known to God, and it flows from God. And he interacts with his creation, and everything does have purpose. The difference between fatalism and predeterminism is purpose and providence. And the reason it's important to know this is because Calvinists are often accused of being fatalists. That if God, if God is sovereign and he plans everything, why is there a point to do anything? We just do whatever he is said to do. But that's not thinking of his providence. And quickly, one uh, application as it pertains to God's providence, everything we've learned this morning. The tendency of man is to buck against God's sovereignty and his providence because he wants to be free of God. This is an unsuccessful endeavor. But as Christians, how should we react or, or respond to the doctrine of God's providence? The doctrine of God's providence should give us utmost joy, comfort, peace, shalom with God. We're told in Romans 8 that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and call it according to his purpose. Only a sovereign and providential God can make such a claim to his people. He is the covenant Lord. God's providence is his goodness toward you. That doesn't mean that life will be easy. That doesn't mean that we won't go through trials and hardships. But it does mean that everything, to the exclusion of nothing, is for your good, even if we cannot see it. The universe is in the hands of a covenant Lord who sent his Son to die for his people. That is the one who is sovereign, and that is the one who governs the universe. He is the most holy, wise, just, loving, gracious, you name it. Lord, the death of Christ on your behalf was not the result of chance. It is the result of purpose. 
It is the result of love toward you. The Lord really, really loves you. He literally sent his son to die for you. So when things happen in our lives and we think to ourselves, everything happens for a reason. That is only half true. Really, everything happens for God's reason. And we live in his world, and he is our covenant Lord. So any comments before we pray and wrap up? Solomon said last week he would lay down to rest but could get no rest because he was worrying about things he couldn't control. Easier said than done. <laughs> Anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for being our covenant Lord. We thank you for sending Christ to die for us in our place. Uh, we thank you that that wasn't a, a random occurrence, an act of chance, but it was purpose, it was intended to glorify yourself and to save a people for your own. And we pray that you would help us to realize this truth, help us to live in light of your graciousness and your love and kindness and mercy. Uh, we now pray that you would prepare our hearts for worship, that we would store up what you would have us to know, that we would love and cherish you and love and cherish each other. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.